electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in fast semi-surge this week, the bean down chips are jumping. The SMH up nearly 6% and the sector is outperforming the S&P. Is this a bullish sign for the markets ahead of earnings season? Plus, it's electric. The EV stocks are charging higher again today, while the old guard autos are surging too. The former CEO of Ford, Mark Fields, is with us uh, to discuss the road ahead for the industry. And later, we're on the clock for tomorrow's big jobs report. We'll ask the traders what's a Goldilocks number to keep this week's rally rolling. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market side in the heart of Times Square on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Courtney Garcia, Bono and Eisen, and Pete Nigerian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. We start off with a news alert on Twitter. The Washington Post reporting just moments ago that Elon Musk's bid to buy the company is in peril as his camp decided they could not verify the social media platform's spam account numbers. Separately, the Wall Street Journal saying Twitter is laying off almost a third of its talent team. Shares of Twitter right now are down about four and a quarter percent. Um, Tim, what do you make of this? I mean, we knew that he was sort of trying to, it seemed like he was making overtures to back away from this deal for a while. Oh, without question. And, and the, the ultimate tactic here is certainly to do whatever it takes to, to first of all, he, he can't lose. He either wants to get out of this deal or he wants to drive the price down. And, and I think he certainly knows he could have gotten this thing cheaper. Um, listening to uh, efficiency at a tech company, job cuts, dynamics that we're hearing throughout the industry isn't terribly startling. Um, also, a company that, that really has to reassess a, a lot of the, uh, the ways they've been making money. So, uh, you know, this is part of that soap opera. I, th- I think we continue to play out here. But I actually believe that once, uh, I, I don't know whether it gets out of the deal. I'll let the lawyers figure this out. I think if there was no deal, mm-hmm. um, I think Twitter, Twitter me, me, meanders somewhere around here and it actually gets to a place where the stock actually starts to rally. This is a company that a year ago, remember, and I, I hawk about this all the time, that investor day when they told us they were doubling revenues and they were going to get up to you know the, the, the type of DAUs that, that actually the investor community uh, had to upgrade their outlooks on this. I don't think they get there. Uh, I think this process uh, and the fact that there doesn't appear to be any other buyers for this is what's pushing the stock around. Pete, did you sniff out any of this sort of uh, possibility in the options market when it comes to Twitter options? No, Mel, I did not see anything. As a matter of fact, I was just looking off to the side, so I apologize. And I did not see anything today that would indicate this. But I will say this, and to Tim's point, but when you're looking at Twitter, and, and obviously whether it's Elon Musk himself or even in the future, let's say he does drop out. Are, what, what's going to happen to their ads when people suddenly start making the same kind of questions that Elon Musk had is, how many bots do we have? How many fake accounts actually exist? All of those kind of questions actually still need to be answered, whether or not Elon Musk actually follows through with what he's going to do or not. So. I think it's a very interesting spot, and that's the only reason I push back a little bit, Tim, on why I don't necessarily see this stock actually starting to make any kind of a move to the upside. I still think that 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 is something we've always talked about. We've never really defined it, and I think right now we've been highlighted to it by by Elon Musk and the strategy he's been using of late. I mean, considering there was a bid for for Twitter, I mean, it really has never closed that gap. It's never traded as if this deal was going to happen. So let's say he does walk away. He pays a billion-dollar breakup fee, Courtney. Does Twitter go significantly lower from here, knowing that there isn't really a buyer out there for this company? 
or does it meander where it is because it's been trading like that the whole time? Yeah, well, it's clearly trading a lot lower than it had been previously. And I think realistically, um, I think it's a good point where those questions have to be answered, because if he's backing out because there's too many fake subscribers, that is going to affect their ad revenue. So ultimately, I don't see that necessarily as a catalyst for the stock. Um, but yes, there may not be other buyers out there. And that that is another thing that may not be a, kind of an out to this at the end of the day. So I wouldn't be chasing it here by any means, kind of regardless of what's happening with Elon Musk or not. Um, this is another one of your high flyers that's been... Um, your like larger growth names that I'm really not chasing at the moment. Yeah. What do you make of all this, Bonwin? Uh, I think you make a good point in terms of the fact that it never really traded as if this deal was going to close. I mean, I think uh, I think the proposed deal turns around 53.20 or so. The stock kind of rallied up to. That sounds about right. Stock rallied around like $50 and quickly reversed. Maybe it's 55, 30. But I mean, it never. You never saw that continuation, particularly when you think about. Um, like the, the, the deal type of trades, that is very much like a very small margin that is levered to the hilt in terms of like the, the type of trades that get behind putting on deal names. And you never really saw that follow through type of activity. With that said, I think that the, the general macroeconomic environment and general market tra- trading environment doesn't really lend itself to, to me seeing a real catalyst for the stock here. But I don't see any additional idiosyncratic risk to Twitter that has not always already been kind of unearthed with this whole Elon Musk fiasco. That, that, that's where I think you go with this because look, it, it traded up to near the deal price for six so weeks. All the so let's be clear. Have been exposed uh, yeah, well, through this process. D- did we not know that there were bots at Twitter? Come on, did we not know that they needed to well, monetize? That's what's so did we? When we talked to analysts right afterwards, right. you know, in, in terms of when Elon Musk was sort of grilling the company about how many bots there were, I said, you know, I think I asked Mark Mahaney this yes. once. I was like, you know, does, isn't it disturbing? that we didn't never really had a handle on that in your model. You never really had right. a firm number as to how many fake accounts there were. And you're building this entire model of revenue based on, I don't know, a number that you're guessing on. But I, I, I think the analyst community acknowledges that plus or minus, you know, but plus, more yeah, importantly, uh, the numbers end up on the revenue side. I mean, you, you get what you get. And, and there's been frustration with that for a long time. Um, but it traded near the deal price until Elon started squawking about it. And then it trades back to where it was, where, where clearly... Twitter's traded like a high multiple tech stock, exactly almost correlated one to a lot of the high multiple tech stocks. And even almost even to a snap, give or, give or take the snaps uh, downgrade and their, or their warning on their outlook. I, I just think we have to get to a place where Twitter, this is a company that, remember, there's plenty of time for big media companies. We, we talked about it on this desk. Who would be a great fit to buy Twitter? And nobody has stepped up. It's not as if there was uh, any new news around this. There's no one that, that, that stepped up until Elon did. So why should the stock trade through the floor that it was, unless you believe it has to trade on a, you know, linearly to where the NASDAQ has moved? So, so the NASDAQ from the time it was a $35 stock uh, is probably down 10% or 15%. It's rallied back almost 10%, by the way, in the last 13 days. If you believe Twitter is supposed to just track the Nasdaq's move, it probably goes another 5% lower, 10% lower. But I don't see why you have to take this stock significantly lower to where the deal right now is not priced in this stock. I'm glad you mentioned it trades like a high growth growth, uh, multiple stock because that's how Tesla trades. And that's the other dynamic in the whole thing. Because if you overlay the charts, I mean, it's actually fairly similar in terms of the spike that you saw at around the same time, because that's when multiple high multiple stocks spiked. And then the decline that we saw afterwards till this date, Pete, that's the other dynamic in this whole thing. Where's Tesla shares? It was over a thousand bucks or so over more than that when this deal was announced. And here we are today. I mean, a lot has changed for Elon Musk. A a lot has changed. But Mel, remember this, too. Remember, he had to start getting cash to be able to do part of this deal right from himself. 
And how did he get that cash? He's selling Tesla. Where was he selling Tesla? I mean, those are the other side of this trade as well. If he's able to get out of this, he loses a billion dollars. Let's just say that's the exact number. If he, if he loses a billion dollars, well, think about the money that he sold when he was selling that stock, because I believe it was right around 900 up to a little over 1000 bucks a share where he was selling to actually generate the cash. He could buy that back down here in the 700s, and all of a sudden he's got a pretty good trade there as well. So Elon is always sharp. He's always on his A game. And I think this is going to be really interesting to see how this all really kind of, you know, the whole thing unfolds. But I still think, Tim, when you look at those numbers, I don't think there was a single analyst out there who questioned the size of the bots that they had. And then when Elon mm -hmm. did, the numbers were far different than anybody thought. And because of that, I think that's why a lot of those analysts are going to have to really back off and say, you know what, we were, we were you know, valuing this company at this because we didn't think that they had that percentage of their quote-unquote folks that are there really that were caught up in the bot world. No, that's fair. That's fair. I, 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 I do think ultimately for Twitter, though, it's been a story of, of, of revenue and it's been a story of growing that revenue line and figuring out how they're going to monetize, whether all it's, the, you know, some of the live stuff, some of the interactive stuff, whether it's a real advertising model is what we've been waiting for. Um, it's just, you know, the, the, the actual number of users or the number of bots is imputed upon whatever numbers we have. And, and I think the numbers we have are where the frustration is really with the, with the platform. But I, it, you're right, Pete. I, I, there's no question this has been an issue. Uh, I just think it's always been an issue. So I think Pete raises an interesting point, and that is, you know, the, the ultimate question maybe for Elon Musk, and that is, <laughs> would you go ahead and buy Twitter here or buy Tesla stock Ooh, here? Would you rather for Elon? It's a would you, you rather that. because, ultimately, I mean, that's, that's what it <laughs> sort of boils down to, right, in this moment in time. Where is more upside? Um, so, Bonwin, what, what would you say? Can I alter that just a little bit without getting put into you the penalty box? For your vacation. I know, I know. I'm asking. I'm, I'm asking the referee. If it's a would you rather buy Twitter and save a billion dollars, uh -huh. or would I rather buy Tesla and have to spend an additional billion dollars? If that's the case, that's fair. If that's the case, I think I'd go on ahead and buy Twitter here. You would. Okay. Yes, I would. Well, how, how about just, can just I ask? What would you buy? Right, right. How about just simply investors, not right. Elon spending? Like, what's buy a better buy here? Twitter or Tesla? And that's it. That's that, that, well, for me, it's Twitter. It's Twitter all day long. I mean, I, I can't stomach I can't stomach the valuation in Tesla. I still think we're in a difficult, high multiple environment. I, I actually think the EV story is a very exciting one, and there's plenty of other car makers that I'd rather own uh, to get that. So exposure. even though you see the road ahead for for Tesla in terms of the potential market share gains and the new markets that it's entering, the new factories, oh, increased it's production, in, Mel. come on, that's all priced in. Uh, I mean, and we don't know what the road ahead is for Twitter in terms of monetizing and all the things that we're waiting for and waiting for and waiting for. No, but there's no good news priced into Tesla. I mean, I mean, in, into Twitter into Twitter. And so, you know, to me, again, this is a would you rather where I have a company that we've exposed all the warts, we've questioned the bots, we've, we've actually determined that there's no other buyers for it uh, in a high multiple tech sell-off. Uh, you know, and, and by the way, you know, later so on the, the show, we're going to start, we're going to start talking, yeah, we're going to start talking about how high multiple tech's starting to rally and has had a great month. So, um, yeah, I, Twitter all day long. Courtney, what would you say? <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to agree here. Um, as much as I, I'm not necessarily a buyer of Twitter, if I have to do a would you rather, I do think it's probably the lesser of the two evils because Tesla is just so expensive right now. And I just don't know how much we can justify that, especially when you compare it to like a Ford or a GM who's getting into the EV space and mm -hmm. is significantly cheaper. So um, not that I'm necessarily a buyer on Twitter, but if it's a would you rather, I'm going to go with Twitter. I feel like Pete might be the detractor. Oh, oh. But Pete, you, you oh, answer yeah. the question for me. He started this, Pete. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I absolutely would buy Tesla over Twitter if that's, a, if that's where we've gotten this whittled down to. I yeah. would absolutely go with Tesla. And I'll tell you what, the, the argument of, well, but they're pricey, well, they're expensive, all those different things, that's been true for the last five or ten years, right? I mean, this is a company that it's been, been touted as it's, it's innovative. They've got all this data. They've got all this stuff. It is a computer on wheels, all the things we already know. And by the way, take a look at that balance sheet and put that up against Twitter's balance sheet. I'll take Tesla every single day of the week. All right, let's move on to the suddenly surging semi-stocks, the SMH chip ETF jumping 4.6%, its biggest gain since mid-May. And take a look at this. In the last three days, the sector has outperformed the S&P by nearly four percentage points. Tim was just pointing out last week that uh, the chips were underperforming, and that's a bad sign for the economy. So... So now what? This has got to be a good sign, Tim. Well, and, and, you know, don't look now. But, again, you've had outperformance by tech over the last five weeks. And and you now have semis, which were drastically underperforming. And we're down 40 percent to the lows uh, three days ago. Now performed by about 4 percent to the S&P, which has had a good couple couple days as well. Um, And and I think you get to a place where I'm not saying you go out and you buy semis. I'm actually telling you, as folks who are watching markets, um, this is very encouraging. Now, you, you have a place where you are very oversold. And, in fact, you could look at the SMH and say, you know, not until you get to kind of 220 have you not broken this downtrend. This is what we do on this show. But uh, I, I think to the extent that semiconductors, we had an announcement by Samsung today, which was, you know, a, a catalyst to today's rally. And let's be clear, it's been an outperformance of 4% over three sessions, but it was up 4.6% today. I mean, semis today rallied on one of the biggest and most important semiconductor companies in the world, especially across memory uh, and those which are put into smartphones. Uh, and again, a read into maybe even Apple and, and some of the other folks. This was a relief. Uh, announcement by Samsung uh, and what it did then for for Taiwan Semi and the folks that are really in the more commoditized and in the foundry space, it gave everybody a boost. The question is, have semis to this point uh, priced in more than a multiple contraction uh, than, than the cycle should have it at this point? And that's what the market's told you over the last couple of days that they have. Right. I mean, a foundation to this also before Samsung's announcement today was Micron just taking an ax to their estimates. And so some some have argued that, you know, at this point, maybe we've we factored that in that people are looking at the worst case scenario. So we got Micron cutting their estimates. We have Samsung with this good number. We had Foxconn also say that they see good demand for smartphones. So we're seeing all these other data points indicating that there's actually, it's not so bad. Uh, Well, Tim, I think you mentioned, you used the word commoditize and and like various points along the the infrastructure. So like Micron is one of those more commoditized names. So like I I think that might actually give you a bit more insight into economically, like cyclically where we are, right? Because like that's less specialized. I will say, and this isn't, I don't want to sound flippant. AMC was also one of the leaders today. I think this market is absolutely <laughs> confused. I just don't think it matters. So you just that, don't no, buy I, this semi. I mean, no, like, no, like, ah. I, I, not, not at all. And okay. I think all great points Fair. that you made, Tim. I just, I just think it's insignificant. The stuff that you hated yesterday, you love today. The stuff you mentioned me leaving. The stuff that people hated a week ago is now love today. Whether it be energy or now semis, I think this market just really can't make up its mind. And it's really that oscillation but, between under and out performance that actually gives me more concern. There, there is literally no follow through. We, we talked about it with Twitter in terms of the, the deal arbitrage people not, not getting involved. I don't see follow through in leadership. 
And until but, I see that, it's hard for me to get bullish. So I, and I hear you, and I think it's great to be able to have the, the perspective of saying, hey, look, I've walked back to a market with some fresh eyes, and I don't see a whole lot's different fundamentally. But when I hear Samsung say, uh, first of all, they're working on a three nanometer ahead of Taiwan Semi, that's company specific. But they, you know, everybody knows, and we got some guidance from within the sector that that the, the, the last few weeks of June were really ugly for mm-hmm. for uh, for a lot of the semiconductor players. They basically pointed out the data center and smartphones and even some memory were in decent shape, not awful shape. That's fundamental news. That's fundamental news for a market that had oversold and really has been looking for data points. And that's really where we are going into second quarter earnings. We're all flailing around around macro policy and a market that's re-rating on multiples and actually looking for the companies to tell us what's going on. I do think it's not getting better uh, in the short term. I'm not going to hear tell you I'm really bullish on semiconductors. I'm going to tell you as a market participant, I'm watching it. And yeah, and this is notable. And I do think that they were overdone to the downside, at least relative to the rest of the market. So it's a trade. Is it a trade, Pete, in your view? And is it any sort of uh, indicator when it comes to the economy? Because that's oftentimes what we, we oh. say when we take a look at semis in their path. Right. And I think people are getting a little bit more comfortable, at least for the moment, uh, uh, talking about different things going on with inflation. People have been talking about copper. They've been talking about the pullback in crude, all of those different commodities, obviously. Right. So I think that's part of the story. But before we get too excited about it, and I say this as a guy who is pretty overloaded with semiconductor exposure right now. I've got Micron. I've got Marvell. I've got NVIDIA. Um, but, but I think the reality is we have round tripped from exactly where we were a week ago. So we've gone from 207 on the SMH back to 207 on the SMH. A month ago, it was 241. So we got to keep some perspective right now about what's really going on. But have we started to turn? I can tell you this, very, very short-term stuff. Absolutely, Mel. I already own NVIDIA, but I actually bought calls in NVIDIA today as well. So I, 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 think, that, I think it's a time to be very aggressive but with being very, very smart as well, because I don't know necessarily that we are out of the woods just yet, but we certainly are still near these lows. And I think it's something we got to be very, very careful as you're kind of planning on what stocks you might want to find that you think are the best stocks going forward. All right. Well, semis may have jumped today, but the SMH ETF has lost nearly a third of its value so far this year. Nextcast says it will take earnings season for things to settle down. Let's bring in Stacey Raskin. He's a senior U.S. semiconductor analyst, managing director at Bernstein. Stacey, great to have you with us. I feel like we've had a lot of different data points um, from various chip makers so far. Are there sort of any linchpins in earnings season in your coverage universe that you'll be really listening to in terms of setting the stage for a real semi rebound? Yeah, I mean, right now there is some macro weakness, which is well-known. Micro, Micron pointed some of this out. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe the things that are in the consumer space, like consumer PCs, smartphones, especially like Android smartphones in China have been very weak. Televisions, those kinds of things have been weak. Um, enterprise spending and data center has still been pretty strong, although many investors are worried that that's sort of the next shoe to drop. But, but as at this point, still seems pretty good. Automotive has been very strong, um, although there's some concerns about sustainability. But at this point, there are still shortages in that space. Auto strong. And so people are going to be looking at least at the consumer side um, and, and see what some of those um, players say. And then we'll see how it maybe propagates or not, like through the rest of the space as we get the earnings season. Is it your sense, Stacey, that a lot of estimates will have to come down during this earnings season for your space? You know I, I think investors want to see estimates come down. So. You know, if you look at this, the space, the sector is down 35 or 40 percent, like since the beginning of the year, since the peaks of the beginning of the year. It's all multiple at this point. The multiples have come down 35 or 40 percent. And one silver lining is if you look at prior cycles, the typical peak to trough multiple compression is about a third. It's 30, 35 percent. So we're at that much or maybe even a little more than we typically see. 
Um, what investors are broadly looking for are, are earnings revisions. And in fact, look at Micron. Micron earnings revision, the earnings got cut in half. The stock today is higher than it was the, the day before they reported because they took a nice big whack to those numbers and investors can maybe get a little more comfortable that maybe the bottom is in. Um, this is normal behavior. Multiples come down, then, ask, then investors look for earnings to come down and maybe they feel a little more comfortable once they know, once they feel like the bottom is, is in. Um, as it turns out, typically the best time to buy the stocks is after numbers start coming down, but maybe if you could be perfect about it, about three months before the estimates bottom. So that's the best time. The worst time usually is right when numbers come down, which is why investors want to see cuts, but they don't want typically don't want to do anything until they see the cuts. So that's where we are right now. Yeah, and Stacey, uh, Courtney here, but I do have a question. When it comes to our semis, I think one of the things that we're looking at, too, is inventory seem to be picking up, which really could be a question of if we're seeing demand start to deteriorate. I think the question is how much of that is already priced in? Is that something that you have a concern about? I, I do. So, you know, we, we started turning cautious in September. I started downgrading stocks. And by the way, in hindsight, I should have downgraded a few more of them, as it turns out. But that was actually my worry back then. It wasn't even so much macro or anything else. It, it was inventories and, and double ordering and apparent overshipping of semiconductors relative to their end markets. And again, across a wide variety of end markets, uh, PCs, automotive, industrial. When you look at the semi shipments versus the end markets, there is a very sizable gap and it's been there for quite a while. Um, and so even though demand has been so strong, we still don't really know how much of that demand has been real and how much of it is phantom. And we will not know that until lead times pull back and until supply and demand kind of normalizes and, and then we, we see where things settle out. But it's certainly on investors' minds. And now, again, you have potential macro issues that are on top of that. And this, is again, is why the multiples have pulled back in. Investors don't believe the earnings estimates as they stand right now because of those worries. All right, Stacey, thanks. And your, your top pick is Broadcom. We appreciate your time. Stacey Raskin. Uh, he, he notably said in his notes to us uh, he would not own Intel. Um, that's interesting. It's a name I own, and, and, and I think the story, so I, I, I drew attention. I did think attention. of you when I saw that. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and I think his, his point is probably that there are other companies, especially after a pullback like this, that have more drivers, and even a beleaguered company like Qualcomm, which was my final trade last night. Uh, it, you know, the point is that some of the external headwinds or some of the dynamics around their adjacencies, which are bullish, but also 5G, and you've alleviated the, the Apple dynamics and some of the things that just kept this stock range-bound or underperforming, and at 14 times, you get to a multiple relative to itself, again, relative to its peers and itself, that this makes some sense. And you've seen the kind of multiple contraction that I think has exceeded where we are in this cycle. Coming up, EVs for all. Tap the brakes. One top former automaker CEO says the mass appeal is years away. That story is ahead. But first, we've got a retail roundup for you. Shares of GameStop dropping as Levi Strauss moves higher. The headlines driving these two stocks when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customer 
customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a market flash on GameStop shares dropping in the after hours after news. The company's CFO is leaving. The gaming retailer also planning to lay off employees across the company. The stock giving back almost all of its gains made in the regular session, which it made on the back of an announcement of a stock split. Interesting timing, Pete Nigerian. It announces a stock split. The stock rises and then the CFO is out the next day. It is amazing timing. Absolutely amazing timing. You'd almost want to see, I don't know if you'd want to almost flip those around or not. I'm not really sure which one's better to have first, but it is interesting to see. We know these meme stocks have been absolutely crazy and they continue to be crazy, Mel. And they do attract a lot of different option players as well throughout all of this, whether it's GameStop or AMC or any of those names. They certainly do provide a lot of fireworks and we're seeing some of that right now. All right. Meantime, Costco out with June sales numbers just moments ago. Net sales up more than 20 percent from last year. And Levi Strauss also posting Q2 earnings after the bell today. Shares jumping after reaffirming full year guidance. For more on what those reports say about the consumer, let's get to Courtney Reagan. I guess the consumer loves denim these days, Court. Loves denim, loves shopping at those <laughs> warehouse clubs, Mel. Costco putting up a really strong June. Net sales up more than 20%, as you mentioned. Total comps up more than 18%, and that's globally. U.S. is the strong point. Comparable sales in that region here up more than 21%. And then if you strip out the impact of gasoline and FX, global June comps still increase 13%. E-commerce up more than 8%. Again, this is for the month of June. Shares are relatively flat on the results here after hours. Costco shares up about 5% in a month, and that does well outperform the retail ETF, the XRT. Now, Levi Strauss did beat consensus estimates for profit and sales, again, reaffirming its full year guidance just as it did last quarter. The denim company says its outlook assumes no significant worsening of the COVID-19 pandemic, inflationary pressures, or other further currency impacts. And while inventory for Levi was up 29%, the company says that's in line with our expectations and our plan to build core inventory to help mitigate supply chain risk. And by the way, capture some consumer demand. Direct-to-consumer global revenues up 16% year-over-year, wholesale up 15% year-over-year. Margins are flat, and Levi notes that a higher percentage of full-price sales and price increases, which are a good thing for the company, were then offset by the impact of higher product and freight costs. Levi shares are up after hours on the results and have outperformed the XRT over the last three months, though still down 12% since the company did last report in April. Melissa. All right, Courtney, thank you. Courtney Reagan. Um, Costco, by the way, along with Dollar General, replaced Walmart on Oppenheimer's top picks list. Um, so that was another news item in retail today. Courtney, which one do you like? Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting to look at Costco here because um, I think when you look at some of their renewals, getting um, customers to come back into the stores, they've done a really good job of that. And even through past times, we've had other corrections. We've had a recession. They've continued to bring people in, in stores, improve the renewals. And um, 
What's, the only gives me pause there is they are trading at a premium um, to some of their longer-term averages when you look at their valuations. But I think ultimately, if we go into this period where we're either in a slowing economy or we have inflation, they have this value proposition to bring con- customers in, get some of those good bulk prices. So that does, I think, put you in a better position than some of the retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate a little caution given the valuation, but I, I think it might have some opportunity. Uh, Bonwin? Yeah, I tend to agree. Um, and she pointed out what I was going to say in terms of like the, the valuation there. Um, one thing that did kind of stick out to me is I'll say is th- their gross margins tend to be a bit leaner than some of their uh, other cops. So the value proposition here really is from operational efficiency. So I would like to see a bit more data around there before making a, a final decision. All right. There's still a lot more fast to come. Here's what's coming up next. After being stuck in reverse this year, car stocks are throwing it into overdrive this week. Does the rally have more gas in the tank? Buckle up, because former Ford CEO says auto demand won't stall out here. He joins us next. And later, as recession worries mount, all eyes on the big jobs report. What do our traders want to hear tomorrow morning? They'll break it down ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. The UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money. Berkshire Hathaway continues to add to its stake in Occidental Petroleum, the company adding just under 700 million shares to its stake, buying buying, 12 million shares on Tuesday and Wednesday. Berkshire now has just under 84 million shares in total. Wow. What do you think of that, Tim? Buying weakness. And it's not like he's chasing this trade. I mean, this is this is a guy who looks for moments of dislocation and and, and does it. Remember, he, he always had a significant position in Oxy. In fact, he was north of 15 percent, but that he's been in buying aggressively. And I, again, I, Occidental has some more exposure also to uh, Nat Gas and some areas that I think are going to remain uh, strong. I, I think the way this company is run and his ability to feel confident in a management team that's running efficiently is part of why they don't care. They, they want more control here. Yeah, and the terms under which he's able to buy, if you, if you go back and think about the GFC and that whole Meltel and the way that he was able to actually get exposure to companies without having to make margin calls, I think this is just another fantastic uh, you know, strategic move by Warren Buffett, and it really shows why he is who he is. Let's switch gears here. A lot of torque 
in the auto mm. trade this week. Lucid rallying another 9% today. Rivian and Tesla also showing strong upside, plus legacy automakers seeing big gains. Ford up more than 5% today. It is followed by GM, Honda, and Toyota. Our next guest predicts the rally may have legs despite fears of an economic downturn. Mark Fields is a former CEO of Ford and Hertz. He's now a CNBC contributor. Mark, great to speak with you again. Hi, Melissa. Um, so the last time I spoke to you was just less than a week ago. <laughs> um, and we were talking about uh, the valuations of some of the legacy automakers and in particular Ford. You're walking me through why you think for automakers will actually do OK in the recession. Can you sort of walk through that again? Because I feel like people are concerned about that. They're concerned that when they get the supply chain disruption straightened out and, and get the supply out there, that the demand will no longer be there because of the downturn in the economy. Yeah, well, there's a big difference versus previous downturns. And I've been through four or five downturns. And usually when you go into a downturn in the auto industry, you have a good amount of inventory. Uh, you're spending a lot of money on incentives even before the downturn. In this downturn, as we, at, at whatever the extent of the downturn, it is a very different scenario here. You have uh, two years of pent-up demand where the industry, their volume has fallen about 20% because of the supply chain and COVID issues. That's about the average decline you usually see in a recession for the auto industry. So you could argue the volume decline has already happened. You have that pent up demand. And yes, you have you know, interest rates up and you know, the consumer being stressed these days. But that being said, even if there is lower level of demand for the next you know, 12 to 15 months, the industry has to restock itself. The industry has about a million, 1.1 million vehicles in stock. It usually has about three to four million at this point in time. So even if demand is down, the automakers will still be producing and recognizing revenues for that because they have to restock because of the last couple of years. And that is very different from any other downturn the industry has faced. Hey, Mark, it's Tim. And it sounds like you're then referencing, you know, really the, the core uh, internal combustion engine business is something that needs to be valued more. And maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but, but that ultimately Ford and GM, yes, they have the EV exposure. They're not given really any credit for their core business. And it almost seems as if um, that's the part of the business that, uh, yeah, our EV is great. But I know you've pointed out that it's difficult to ramp up production in a supply constrained environment right now. And that the core business they have is very strong. Well, exactly. You're exactly right. The core business is extremely strong right now because of the limited inventory. They're doing a couple of things. First, they're spending a lot less money on incentives, which helps their margins. They're spending a lot less money supporting dealers in terms of what they call floor plan, which is interest rates that they interest rate support that they give them to hold inventory for a short period of time. They don't have that anymore. So going forward, you know, as they restock and as you have this limited kind of supply and demand situation, it's going to be very favorable for that ICE, what's termed ICE business, the internal combustion business, which, by the way, provides the profits for all the investments and in all the EVs that they're doing. Mark, when you think about the path to profitability when it comes to let's just use Ford as the example, Ford's path towards uh, you know, converting its portfolio to EV. Is there a magic number? Is there a, a mass number that, that the automaker needs to reach in order to, to make this a profitable venture if you assume that the cost for batteries and some of the components will remain somewhat elevated just because the demand across the industry for limited supplies of these metals is out there and will stay out there? Well, the magic number moves around a lot. And the reason mm -hmm. it moves around a lot these days, Melissa, is because the input costs, particularly the elements, cobalt, lithium, graphite, 
Uh, those prices are high right now. The resources uh, in terms of demand versus the expected production from uh, automakers over the next number of years for EVs uh, is quite dislocated. So as that price moves up, it moves the, uh, the number that you mentioned around. And, and keep in mind, the auto industry is terrific at using economies of scales to drive down costs. They can't do that with these elements. The elements are what they are. It's the market price. So they're going to have to look at other means, whether it's the battery packs, the inverters, the motors that they use to really drive a lot of scale to get the margins that they want. It sounds like the number's got to be higher if you assume that the component costs are going to remain elevated as well. Exactly. And the number keeps moving higher as you see those input costs go up. All right. Mark, it's always great to get your take. Always nice to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks. Mark Fields. All right, Pete. So what's the trade here in the auto sector? Are you going to say Tesla again? Yeah, he is. Uh, no, no, I'll give you another one. Uh, I do like Tesla. I really, truly do. And, and I've been in it many times. But Lucid's also a name that I think is getting uh, a little bit more credit all the time. And people are starting to, to you know, look at this name a little bit more than they were maybe six months ago, even a year ago. So when I look at that name and Tesla, I think the EV space is the place to be. And obviously with oil trading where it is right now, near 100, over 100, I think that just pushes more and more towards that EV space. So I think that is why we are seeing something like what Tesla just did with their deliveries over in Shanghai at a record number. I think we're going to see more and more of that. But of course, Ford and GM and everybody else, they're all chasing it right now. But I think there are some leaders that are in front for now. Court. Yeah, and I I think I have to agree. I think longer term speaking, I think you're going to see this push into electric vehicles, especially with the cost of oil right now. You're right, it's going to push some of that demand that way. But I just, at a certain point in time, I think it's really hard to justify some of the price of your Teslas or even the fact that your Lucid or your Rivian aren't just aren't profitable right now. And I think when we're in this kind of macro environment, those aren't the kind of companies that I want to look at. And I see a Ford or a GM where you can get it significantly lower, right? Tesla's trading at like 60 times forwards earnings. Ford's trading at like five times forward earnings. And it's kind of your way of having your cake and eating it, too, where you're going to get your traditional um, energy, I'm sorry, your traditional automotive in there. But on top of that, you're going to get that electric vehicle, which I think is the future. And they're able to shift that way rather than j- jumping in with two feet. All right. Coming up, another Bitcoin lender goes belly up. Voyager Digital filing for bankruptcy. What does this mean uh, for the crypto community? That story next. Plus, an energizing bounce higher in crude oil. One trader's betting big on one name. That trade is straight ahead. Much more fast money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. New developments in the Voyager digital bankruptcy. The Wall Street Journal now reporting that the FDIC is looking into marketing claims made by Voyager that customer funds and crypto purchases were safe, insured by the FDIC. This comes as just days ago, Voyager suspended all trading, deposits and withdrawals, including deposits stored at Metropolitan Commercial Bank. Pete, um, your company, Market Rebellion, you had a relationship with Voyager. You were an investor uh, with the company. You actually referred your customers to Voyager to create accounts and in return receive compensation. What what has the reaction been among your customer base? Well, I think quite honestly, Mel, as as investors, not partners in this particular situation, it's it's frustrating. Everybody woke up to the exact same kind of news uh, the other day and nobody had any kind of a heads up or anything like that. It was just um, an amazing slap in the face when we when we read about what was going on and, and Voyager and obviously the loans that uh, were put out there um, that were documented out there. 
just really frustrating, Mel. I, I think everybody probably um, would, would feel the same way. I mean, this was a, a, a pretty big size investment, uh, shares that I had purchased personally, as well as a company. So uh, frustration is the first thing that comes to mind. It, it's just something where we know what's going on in this crypto world, how frustrating it can be. And uh, unfortunately, you know, there's only so much that I can comment on. But the reality is this has a very, been a very tough last couple of days for me, quite honestly. Um, as I mentioned, Pete, and this is um, straight from your website, from the Market Rebellion website that I'm pulling this from, um, that Market Rebellion received compensation from Voyager on each successful referral that establishes an account on the Voyager digital trading platform. So there was some compensation. You were rewarded for getting your customers to Voyager and establishing an account there. Um, when you made that agreement, were you fully aware um, of, of Voyager in terms of its marketing claims? And, and you must have felt at least decent, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have been referring your customers there. Yeah, I, I really can't comment too much on that, Mel, other than just to say that, it, you know, the frustration and, and obviously the results that we are seeing now um, are are beyond frustrating for all of us and and uh, and, and more so even for myself in, in this particular case. So this isn't just like um, other people. This is me uh, being put into this position as well. And it just makes it very difficult. You know, you, you, you don't always know all the information. We know that as a, an investor in any company. And, and we at, at times have faced other companies that have obviously had to file for bankruptcy. But, you know, this was something that we we certainly were caught off guard. And it was um, it was a complete surprise and shock. How does this make you feel about investing in crypto in general? Does it make you more, much more cautious? Well, yeah, you know, I've, I've been very cautious the whole time going into this before putting in this investment into the crypto world. I understand everybody has their, you know, BK has been a, a big advocate over, over the years with crypto and, and, and it's, you know, Bitcoin and all the various names out there. But, um, you know, Mel, as we're watching a lot of these dominoes fall, it is frustrating. And, and we are seeing a lot of this. And obviously, when you see something that was a $68,000 value in, in something like Bitcoin to get all the way down underneath 20000 it really does make a pretty big statement that, you know, if you don't want to embrace volatility, this is probably uh, a place to, to, to steer away from because there's certainly volatility there. And and a lot of unknowns. And, and unfortunately, in this particular case, uh, just completely caught off guard. Yep. All right, Pete, thank you for that. Coming up, tomorrow's uh, big jobs report. Investors are waiting with bated breath. So what do our traders need to hear? They'll break it down. But first, oil rebounding today. Crude jumping back above the $100 mark. So how are options traders playing the commodity pop? The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Crude oil spiking higher today after the EIA reported an unexpected inventory build of 8.3 million barrels. Energy stocks following suit and one options trader is betting that one particular name can rise another 40 percent in the next few weeks. Mike has got the action. Mike. Yeah, it was the name right at the top of the list of companies you had there. APA Corp, the E&P company. This traded four times more calls than puts on nearly double the average daily call volume and the big trade was a purchase of the August 4050 one by two call spread 3,000 times. What that means is they were buying 3,000 of the August 40 calls, selling 6,000 of the August 50 calls, obviously betting that APA could recover above that 40 strike price by at least the premium that they spent. 
And you'll notice that the strike that they're selling, the $50 level, very close to the June 7th highs of 51 spot 39. This is also a trade that is sometimes used for stock recovery plays against long stock. But I think in this case, they might just be making a bullish bet here. All right. Mike, thanks. Mike Coe for more Options Action. Catch the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up next, the jobs report is on deck and our traders are eyeing some important details in the data. What they are watching for next, Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are counting down to tomorrow's big employment report. Economists expecting 250,000 jobs were added in June and that the unemployment rate held steady at 3.6%. So what is the Goldilocks scenario for this report? What do the markets need to hear to continue the move higher? Tim, what do you say? What is porridge, by the way? I mean, if my porridge is like, just right. I always think of it as oatmeal. I was going to say oatmeal. It's, Something like oatmeal. It doesn't sound oatmeal good. Consists it sounds like gruel, no perhaps. flavor. So the flavor I want for tomorrow <laughs> is one where there's less wage pressure. And, and I think last number was 0.3% wage growth. Uh, I want to see something south of that. I want to see year-over-year wage growth. less uh, Under 5% would be a home run. I think 150 to 250 on the payroll gains is somewhere slightly below. We don't want this number to collapse, but we don't want it to be inflationary. And, and I'm definitely on record saying I think wage inflation is the worst part of it. Yeah, Pete, what do you think? You know, I just want to find out, Mel, are we going to hear anything more about layoffs? Are we going to th- hear anything more about any so- slowdowns in hiring? I think the numbers will probably match pretty close to where, where we're expecting. But I just want to know a little bit more depth to what's going on in this report. Where, where are we seeing things starting to change, maybe in a positive or in a negative way? And I, and I think it's going to be very interesting to, to find the, some of those numbers and see where we are right now, because we've heard about it in tech already, as well as the real estate market. Yeah, Courtney. I think we want to see things obviously slowing, but not slowing to the point that it's going to cause the economy or showing that we're already in a recession right now. Um, but I think I'm a little skeptical we're going to see that because you still have like twice as many jobs as people who can fill them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one interesting thing we're going to watch is the labor force participation rate, because if we have more people entering the labor market, it's actually expected we might see that. That could actually bring down some of the wage pressure, which could kind of be that Goldilocks scenario. So I think that might be interesting to watch. Right. Lisa made a good point, too. I mean, seasonally, we've got younger people entering the workforce at this time of year. Mm-hmm. And so the wage number might be a little lighter right. Right, than normal because of that. Yeah, apparently I like my porridge like Tim's like his porridge, which may not be at all. But um, And you like short haircuts, too. <laughs> just kidding. Oh, I do. Kidding. I do. Just make it sting. Which And these numbers need to sting just a little bit tomorrow. Um, I think you want to see somewhat moderate growth. Nothing too high, not too hot, not too cold. Just kind of perfect for uh, a boy with a short haircut, I guess. Um, you know, I think anything too slow and it kind of looks like, uh, you know, the recessionary pressures are really mounting. Anything too hot, I think only emboldens or at least emboldens perception that the Fed is going to be more aggressive. All right. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Pete. Well, we talked about crude. We also talked about the EV space. I'm going to give you ChargePoint. This is a really interesting name with a lot of option activity looking for upside. Bonowin? Uh, letter T. I think the challenges have been very well documented. And in this environment, I want something who, kn- who knows what the problem is and has already addressed it. Courtney? I'm looking at uh, Ford here. I think we've talked about the EVs versus your more traditional automakers. And I think I'm actually a lot more bullish there. And I think there's better fundamentals. And we still a play on EV on the long run. Tim Seymour. OIH. By the way, S&P up 1.5%, oil up 3.5%, maybe a character change. But but one year ago, OIH was at in a 
probably at this level, oil is at 70 bucks. It's not linear, but it's a reason to buy it. All right. Thank you for watching Fast. I'll see you tomorrow on Squawk Box. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.